0: This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to today's presentation on crisis intervention and preventing suicide. This is based in part on the um, APA practice guidelines, and in your additional... resources section of your class there's the full text to it if you really want to look at it Um, but we're just gonna obviously in a little over an hour hit the highlights so we're going to talk about how to estimate suicide risk we spent a quite a bit of time yesterday in legal issues talking about involuntary commitment and one of the reasons people very often get involuntarily committed is because they are a suicide risk so we're going to talk about how to estimate that and you know We really have not found a foolproof way of doing so, which is why it is so important when you have a client who is suicidal or you think may be suicidal to consult, to make sure that you can document that, you know, another reasonable person with your levels of education and training would have made a similar decision. So if you consult, you can document that and, you know, the decision was made to not, involuntarily commit, and the person does attempt suicide, um, you've got a little bit more legal recourse to protect yourself, saying, you know, none of us saw it coming. Um, Factors altering the risk of suicide and attempted suicide. So we're going to look at things that we can do to prevent um, suicidal ideation and um, suicide, as well as, you know, if somebody is in crisis, what we can do to try to intervene. Additional considerations in specific treatment settings. So if somebody becomes suicidal or goes into crisis in residential or outpatient, what do we need to do? Strategies for enhancing motivation and promoting treatment engagement. When somebody is clinically depressed and they're to the point where they just don't feel like they can go on living, having them have motivation to do worksheets and journaling is it's tough so we're going to talk about ways to increase that motivation we'll talk about education points for the client and family and risk management and documentation issues so it's important to remember that all clients perceive events uniquely based on their history you know what is traumatizing for one person may not be a big deal for another person um, so you don't want to assume as we talked about in trauma informed care that you know how a client is interpreting or reacting to an event all clients participate in care that is respect, respectful and ju- non-judgmental in crisis intervention because you know now's not the time for them to be feeling like they're judged or they're looked down upon because um, they're already feeling vulnerable and threatened reflection and empathy is most effective. You know, let's just hear what the person has to say because right now they're feeling out of control. They feel like they're spinning. So if they can bounce some things off of us, if we can empathize with how out of control they may be feeling right now, um, that gives them a sense that, okay, somebody kind of gets it. There might be some hope. Ego strength is a variable among individuals and it's influenced by past experiences and social support. So who they are, what they want, you know, if they're a good person, all those beliefs that they may have, you know, depends on the person. Some people have very little ego strength and they're always chameleoning, chameleoning, um, trying to be what everybody else wants them to be in order to get approval. Their self-esteem is really low, etc. It's important that clients and families are actively involved in collaboration and decision-making because they want to feel, you know, in crisis, it feels like everything's out of control, hopeless, helpless. When they start making progress, it's important for them to feel like they're in control of the process. They're developing that self-efficacy again. We want to remember that stress is a normal part of existence and can foster self-development and growth. And crisis, I mean... I have never met someone who hasn't at some point in their life gone through a crisis or 12. You know, things happen and it can, you know, throw you into sort of a proverbial tailspin for a few minutes. But it doesn't mean that you're broken. It means that you've, you know, hit a barrier where you've never had to do something like this before or you've overwhelmed the skills that you do have. So you're going to have to be creative and grow and develop from it. You know, people can go through hardships that they never knew they could handle. You know, you ask them later, you know, how did you get through that? And they're like, I never thought that I could manage something like that. And lo and behold, I did. Um, and, And so we start talking about that growth that came out of it. And we need to remember that all clients are capable of assuming personal responsibility. And, you know, you may say, well, if somebody's in crisis, they may need to be involuntarily committed. Okay, maybe. But at some point, you know, when they're in a frame of mind where they're, they're thinking clearly and everything, they're capable of assuming personal responsibility. 99% of the time, or, you know, much greater, actually, because 99 is one out of every 100, but much greater than that, 99.99% of the time. Even when clients are in crisis, they're thinking clearly enough to assume personal responsibility and say, yes, this is something I need or no, this is not. All clients grow and change in an environment of acceptance, trust, and empathic understanding. So there's that humanistic thing coming out. But it's true. If we accept them and we trust that they know what's best for them and we understand where they're coming from, you know, we try to get into their Head, And you're not going to understand exactly where they're coming from because you haven't been there. But we can accept that their point of view may be right. You know, that whole dialectics thing, we both can have very valid points. So we want to accept that they have valid points, they have valid opinions, that we want them to feel validated. Sustained change occurs when clients feel ready and supported, and people have a need for self-mastery and control, which is why we need to bring them in and get them involved and say, all right, I'm sure you've gone through you know tough times before. or What do you think could help you at this moment? Instead of doing things to and for the person, uh, asking them, all right, I need you to help me here because you're the expert on you. Help me see what it is I can do, what you need. Crises can be strewed as danger or opportunities for growth. So, if we can help change the paradigm instead of feeling hopeless, helpless, out of control, as one of a challenge that is the opportunity to grow, then it can be, you know, a little bit more liberating and motivating to the person. Um, Think about, you know, when you want to take your GREs, your SATs, or any of those tests that you really can't study for. I mean, you can prep but you can't study. It feels overwhelming, at least it did to me, because I was one of those people who, who likes to study, likes to know the answers, and going into those, I could have approached it like, oh my gosh, you know, I have no idea what's going to be on this test, and I'm going to be completely overwhelmed, and yada, da yada, da. but instead I said, you know, I've done the test prep class, I've done everything I can do until now, you know, with the skills and tools I have, let's go see. You know, I looked at it as a challenge to see how well I could do on something that wasn't the normal way I prepared for things. And you have to learn to take tests differently when you do the GRE and SAT and aptitude type tests. So, you know, it's kind of the same thing on a much more impactful scale when we're talking about crises. Encouraging clients to look at what they have. Um, you know, not, you know, let's take a gratitude inventory right now. No, that wouldn't be sensitive or appropriate, but we can say, all right, you know, the, your life is very chaotic right now. Your husband left, you lost your job and you've got three kids and you have no idea how you're going to pay the bills and yada, yada. So the person's in crisis. Okay. Who can you rely on? What social supports do you have? What financial stuff? Do you have, you know, savings accounts and stuff? What community resources are there to help you? Start making a list of all the strengths and resources that this person has so they can go, oh, okay, I'm not feeling quite as out of control. There are options. Crisis intervention is an active process that focuses on the immediate problem. We're not talking about dealing with how she feels about how her spouse, you know, walked out on her we're talking about dealing with the immediate problem she's concerned about providing for her children crisis intervention is time limited you know generally crises don't last more than a few days or a week or so before the person you know either starts to feel better or becomes suicidal because you know when they're really intense crises Um, some crises can go on a little bit longer but crisis intervention you're really looking at you know a month or less for crisis intervention services. Now the person may still need counseling services after that to deal with some of their other stuff, but the presenting problem should be able to be on its way to being resolved in a month. Advocacy is essential. You know, when somebody's in crisis, it's up up to us to advocate for them with their family, with their, you know, obviously, with appropriate releases of information, yada, yada. but to help them in whatever way they need. So if we're seeing a client who's in crisis and, you know, maybe they would benefit or they think they would benefit from increasing their dose of antidepressants or something. Um, And they want us to advocate for them with their physician in order to make that happen. You know, obviously it's going to be a clinical decision. If they're trying to get you to get the uh, prescribing doctor to prescribe them, you know, a whole bunch of medications for, you know, that are addictive and stuff, and, and you your spidey senses are going off going, I'm not sure that's really going to help the problem. But we can still advocate with the physician and provide him a written summary of kind of what's going on and how the client is right now and what the client thinks he or she needs um, and then let the physician decide from there. But we can help serve as an interim intermediary we can also help the client identify um, what what it is that they need because sometimes they don't even know so we can just sit down and we can say "All right, let's just make a list here of the things that have helped in the past and what we might be able to do because that stops all the spinning that's going on in their head and it puts it down on paper even if they're not visual learners just putting it down on paper can very often help because then it feels like they're getting grounded and it can, as as you pointed out, um, help the client feel validated when we advocate for them to say, you know, you're not broken. Um, you're, you're struggling right now, but there are things that we can do. So let's work together because they f- feel, I don't want to say like we're on their side, but they feel like what they're asking for is not unreasonable at that point. Um, The focus is always on increasing the client's level of social, occupational, cognitive, and behavioral functioning. So socially, we want to increase their social support, you know, wherever that is. If it's support groups or people they already have in their network, we'll talk about that. Uh, Because in a crisis, people need more support. Uh, And it can be assistance with their kids because sometimes, you know, when if you have a, a child that's in the hospital and you have other children at home, you're going to be stressed out about that child that's sick, but then you're going to need help with the kids that are at home. If, you know, something happens and, you know, the caregiver is just clinically depressed and and in crisis, they may not have the energy and, and ability to think through the process of cooking meals and stuff for a little while i mean we see this when people are grieving in that initial grief process what do we do for wakes and stuff we bring over casseroles we say you know what we know that you don't have the energy to cook right now so we're going to help them focus on what their social supports are but also what resources are in the community that can help them Um, occupationally Help them with figuring out how to take time off from work if they need to, how to get through work if they can't take time off, how can you just kind of get through the process or whatever they need. Cognitively, we're going to help them look at the situation maybe from a broader perspective, you know, open up that tunnel vision. And behavioral functioning, looking at what can you do that's going to help you feel better, what can you do that Or what do you want to avoid that might make you feel worse, such as drinking or not sleeping or whatever? 10-step trauma management protocol. Wouldn't it be great if it were that easy? Just 10 steps, bing, bang, boom, they're done. But it's not. So the first thing we want to do is assess for danger, to safety for self and others. This means the victim us, the counselors, and anybody else who may have been affected by the trauma. Um, so if there's a trauma that happens, um, you know, you want to see where this person is. And, and we'll use the uh, school shootings as an example because, you know, it's a trauma everybody's talking about right now. For each client that we're talking to, uh, each person that was in that in that school or related to someone in that school, we want to assess for danger for self and others are they feeling hopeless helpless out of control defeated um, what about you know obviously if there were the victims of a trauma you know any of them who were actually in there um, we want to assess how they're doing we also want to assess the counselors that are talking to the um, the victims for vicarious trauma and you know we want to look at all aspects you know anybody who's touched by this trauma how are they doing consider the physical emotional and perceptual mechanisms mechanisms of the injury physical mechanisms obviously if the person was punched raped shot whatever emotional how did it make them feel unsafe out of control angry you know any of those dysphoric emotions Um, and even remember in trauma, you can have some, some people who come out of it and feel elated because they kind of got through. It's that rush of adrenaline, like, oh my gosh, I survived. And then they may feel guilty because they felt elated. So we got to look at all that stuff and perceptual mechanisms. How did it change how they perceive the world, their safety, the goodness of other people, the environment, you know, all that kind of stuff. So cognitive, emotional, and physical. The victim's level of responsiveness should be evaluated, or the person in crisis, their level of responsiveness should be evaluated to see, you know, are they here, or are they in, you know, denial, and I'm not talking about Egypt, Uh, because sometimes right after a trauma, people just kind of shut down, and they're physically there, but they're in such a state of shock that they're not really responsive right now. Address any medical needs. If the person's in crisis or if there was a trauma, you know, make sure that they are medically stable. And that can include if, you know, anybody, you know, if it's a trauma situation like like the shooting, any of the the survivors that came out, making sure that they have enough food and water and anybody who's diabetic is getting their insulin tested and making sure that stays stable and they're staying medically stable. I mean, they're not going to be great after a trauma, but we want to make sure they stay stable and we don't have other things because stress makes blood sugar go all over the place. High blood pressure uh, can also be elevated. So check the teachers for high blood pressure. Identify signs of traumatic stress after a trauma or if you're dealing with someone in crisis, again, look for signs of traumatic stress. Maybe a trauma that happened that is now prompting this current crisis. Connect with the individual by developing rapport. Go figure. Build rapport by allowing the client or person to tell their story. Help me understand what's going on here. You know, instead of going in and going, all right, I need you to, I need you to, you've got to, that's taking all their power away. If you can start out with, help me understand what's going on here. Now, sometimes you need to set some limits ahead of time to make everybody, you know, a little bit safer. If there's, you know, when there were fights on the day room uh in the day room i would have to say all right i need everybody to go to their rooms right now or sit down or whatever the case was and then i would say you know this person you need to go with that therapist you why don't you come with me let's go take a walk and let me understand what's going on you know because i wasn't there fill me in um and so we're not taking their power away we're not trying to fix the situation but it's you know getting everybody safe and into a place where we can start as interveners can start understanding what's going on if a clients in your office obviously you just have to say "All right, help me understand Uh, provide support through active and empathic listening you know no judgment here It, it was a crappy situation or or whatever let me let me just hear. Normalize, validate, and educate individuals' emotions, stress, and ad- adaptive coping styles. So I can't imagine what it's like to be going through this like you are. Um, you know, normalize the emotions they're feeling from anger to guilt to relief to whatever it is. Help them understand what normal stress reactions are going to look like or. Traditional stress reactions are going to look like after a crisis or a trauma, so they can go, Okay, you know, this is not unexpected. When people are in crisis, the worst thing that can happen, or one of the worst things that can happen, is for the unexpected to happen. So, if we can say, You know, you may not experience any of these symptoms, but let me tell you what might happen, just so you're not caught off guard, it helps them feel more in control. And we'll talk about adaptive coping styles what you're doing right now, you know, crying, asking for help, is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign that you're trying to survive. You know, after you're, after the trauma, you know, maybe the trauma happened a year ago or something, and the person started drinking or, you know, we'll just use that because that's a really common example. Um, and And instead of pathologizing it, We can say, you know, you had to figure out how to make the pain stop somehow and nothing else was working. Now you're trying to look for other options or now the alcohol is not working either and you're feeling just out of, at the end of the road. And then go from there. Bring the person to the present. Describe future events and provide referrals as needed. So we want to talk about what is it that you need right now? You know, I understand all this stuff that happened yesterday or last week or over the past six months. You know, they've told us that story, and that's a lot to deal with. So, you know, what is it that at this very moment you're needing? You know, in the next 24 hours, what is it that you might need? What, you know, do you have kids that need to be tended, a dog that needs to be walked, plants that need to be watered? You know, have them talk about some of that stuff, that's normal for their daily life, you know, tell me what your normal day looks like so we can figure out, you know, if, if they're going, well, I don't know what I need. Okay, what does your average day look like? You get up in the morning, what do you do? Walk them through that so you can figure out if there are dogs, kids, significant others, a job that needs to be alerted, etc. cetera. Um, and then you can start saying, all right, now how are we going to handle all this? which means you're talking about about making future plans. If somebody's willing to make future plans, that is always a good sign. It isn't a be-all, end-all, but it's a good sign. The safer-er model, and I've added the extra R, stabilize, obviously. You know, if somebody's in crisis, they're not thinking as clearly. They feel like, you know, they're spinning a fish out of water. They can use different um, metaphors, but... We want to help them feel like they're stable, like they can stand, like their legs aren't going to fall out from under them. Acknowledge what's going on. No judgment. Just let me understand what's going on and acknowledge how tough that is. Facilitate understanding. Of you know, you need to understand what's going on with them But they may also need some understanding of what's going on with them So they understand why they're having these reactions and they understand what to expect Um, Encourage adaptive coping so we're going to look at what are the problems you're identifying and what are the Logical steps you can take Uh, restore functioning help them see you know, we were talking about that daily routine How can you start getting back into that daily routine? You may not be 100%, so what are the minimum things you need to do? I know when I was recovering from surgery, it felt like it took forever, and I wasn't 100%, and it drove me nuts. But I had to figure out, okay, now, you know, given the amount of energy I have right now, what needs to be done? And help them, you know, I restored functioning a little bit, and as I got more energy, I added more things back to my daily routine. And then refer, you know, once you have them stabilized, you know what's going on. Most people in crisis are going to need some assistance. And, you know, most people, period, need some assistance. You're not, most of us don't do everything all by ourselves all the time. So make sure they know what resources are out there if they need to tap into them. Prevention is always the best and primary prevention keeps the problem from ever happening. So we would avoid trauma, you know, nobody would ever be traumatized um, and we'd avoid anything that would precipitate a crisis. Well, that doesn't happen, but we can do things to prevent as much trauma as possible. We can do things, for example, to make schools safer. We can do things to make it so people feel safe going to the store and you know other things we can do it, do things to make people feel safe in their neighborhood. So that's primary prevention. Secondary prevention prevents the problem from causing other problems. You know, okay, there's a trauma, let's keep it from let's help the person deal with it so they don't also start developing, you know, generalized anxiety with agoraphobia and substance abuse issues. So, secondary prevention says, all right, we've got this, let's keep it from getting any worse. It's like when you get a cut. A cut is one thing. If you let it fester, if you don't address it, then it could turn septic, and then it starts affecting all of your organs. So, and obviously that's way down the line, but you want to prevent it from causing other issues. Tertiary prevention is preventing the problem from getting any worse, you know, just all right, we've got this problem. The person has was just diagnosed with HIV, or the person, you know, has clinical depression or is in crisis. All right, well, they're in crisis right now. Let's prevent it from becoming a, a suicidal a situation where they may be, be feeling suicidal. In a suicide assessment, obtain information about the patient's psychiatric and other medical history and current mental state. Now, this is when you know, ideally. You've already done the rapport building and everything, and you're actually doing a formal assessment for treatment at this point. Um, You're going to identify specific psychiatric signs and symptoms. Go through your depression and your anxiety checklists. Look for signs of bipolar disorder, psychotic features. Assess past suicidal behavior, including intent of self-injurious acts. Intent. Some people injure um, themselves for reasons other than trying to die. And so it's important to understand what was the intent when you did that. Um, Some people accidentally overdose on, on drugs and they weren't intending to die. They just, you know, accidentally overdosed. Review past treatment history and treatment relationships to figure out what have you done, what's worked, what hasn't. Are there any treatment relationships or people we can hook you back up with And identify the family history of suicide, mental illness, and dysfunction, because then you're going to be able to identify some of the contributing factors, potentially, to the current crisis, but also some of the restorative factors. If you have a a parent who has a uh, mental illness, you know, how did they deal with it? You know, what things helped them? So that may give us some clues. Address the patient's immediate safety and determine the most appropriate setting for treatment. So this is a suicide assessment. This isn't crisis intervention now. We're up to, you know, the patient is has some suicidal ideation. We just don't know where they are on the spectrum at this point. Develop a biopsychosocial differential diagnosis to further guide the planning of treatment. Remember... Suicide assessment scales lack the predictive validity necessary for use in routine clinical practice, so that is the long disclaimer that's in there that says you can use these scales to see how suicidal somebody potentially is, but their their reliability um, and, and ability to accurately predict who's going to attempt suicide and who's not pretty low, because you can have two people who have similar levels. suicidal ideation and one may attempt and the other one may not and we just don't know how to figure out identify specific factors and features that may generally increase or decrease risk for suicide or other suicidal behaviors and that may serve as modifiable targets so social support network is it good if it's good it can mitigate the suicidal ideation you know we might be able to pull that in and you know who can help you if The social support network is, you know, one of the main causes of the distress at this point. Then we're going to try to figure out other workarounds where we can help them get social support, but it may not be from their primary network right now. Cultural religious beliefs, particularly as they relate to death or suicide. Some religions and cultures see suicide as an honorable thing to do when to prevent shame from coming to the family. Other cultures see suicide as an unforgivable sin. So looking at cultural religious beliefs. Now you've got to remember, culturally responsive approach helps us understand that just because I happen to be a white female Catholic doesn't necessarily mean I embrace white female Catholic principles. You know, you know I am from... I have certain ethnicities and cultures that I associate with, but it doesn't mean that, you know, I I have embraced those values. So you don't want to assume that because someone is a certain ethnicity or religion or whatever, that they necessarily embrace the values of that culture. Nature, frequency, depth, timing, and persistence of suicidal ideation. So if their suicidal ideation, you know, happens once a year, You know, not very often it comes, it's a person feels suicidal for a day or two, and then it goes, um, that's different than someone who feels, um, suicidal, you know, seven times a month. And it's really intense Uh, the depth of the suicidality um, is also important you know are they having ideas about it or do they have a plan and they have the means and everything's kind of good to go Uh, so we want to figure out where they are the timing you know sometimes the timing corresponds to certain holidays sometimes it is you know maybe when somebody is alone you know at night They get suicidal during the day they're doing fine they're they're busy they're at work whatever at night they go home they start to think they get kind of trapped in their own head and they become suicidal so all these things are things we're going to think about and if for that person we're going to say how can we help you in the evening you know first thing i would think of is is there somebody you can stay with for a little while so you're not alone At night and you have somebody you can rely on if not let's look for hotlines let's look for uh, people that you can call who are willing to pick up the phone Um, anything that can help help you kind of get out of your own head Um, if ideation is present you want to know more detail about the plans how are you gonna do it do you have the means yada yada and remember if they plan on doing it one way and they don't have the means, and something exacerbates their their suicidality, and they decide, I'm going to do it, they may choose a different method. So don't assume that just because they said they were going to commit suicide this way, and they don't have access to that means right now. Don't assume that means you're, you're free and clear. Identify the current psychosocial situation and the nature of the crisis. You know, get a broad picture of what's going on. And appreciate the psychological strengths And vulnerabilities of the individual patient so you know maybe one of their vulnerabilities is they worry about everything and they're they're stressed out and tend to go from 0 to 220 in 2.3 seconds Um, okay that's a vulnerability but one of their strengths is they persevere one of their strengths is they're really smart Um, one of their strengths you know you can build on those strengths too so we're recognizing that nobody's perfect but let 's look at their strengths, and how can we use these strengths to deal with or mitigate the vulnerabilities so if somebody 's really smart, sometimes they can use cognitive behavioral interventions to deal and you know i, I don 't want to say just people who are really smart, but if somebody 's intelligent, um, they can use cognitive behavioral interventions to deal with you know, persistent anxiety. They can use thought stopping. There are techniques that that they can use. Um, So we want to help people see, let's use this strength. And we're helping them see that they're pulling from stuff they already have within themselves to deal with this other issue. Begin with questions that address the patient's feelings about living, such as, how does life seem to you at this point? Um, Now, I probably wouldn't choose that one necessarily, at the beginning, you know, for me, I tend to start out with, you know, more rapport building and then move into things like, have you ever felt like life wasn't worth living? Or do you ever wish you could go to sleep and not just wake up? I've never been comfortable starting out with those kinds of questions though, because I feel like people would be going, well, no, um, because that, that catches them off guard and they may be afraid that they're going to be involuntarily committed. So, you know, I try to establish rapport and then we start talking about some of these questions focus on the nature frequency extent and timing of the suicidal thoughts and the interpersonal situational and symptomatic context in which they are occurring um, interpersonal we've kind of talked about you know are they alone are they with friends are their friends making it worse yada yada uh what's the situation you know is it some did something recently change in their life that's precipitating this crisis um a diagnosis of a, a terminal illness or who knows. So there could be a situation that's precipitating it. It could be the situation of a, a holiday anniversary that is reminding them of a trauma and precipitating it. And what is the symptomatic context? You know, what are their symptoms? What's going on? Are they feeling agitated, restless, insomnia, wanting to sleep all the time? Is it occurring in concert with, you know, maybe a persistent depressive disorder or generalized anxiety, because that's really going to impact the types of interventions that you might be looking for. Inquire about suicidal thoughts. Elicit the presence or absence of a plan. If the patient doesn't report a plan, ask whether there are certain conditions under which they would consider suicide, which, you know, that's something that I typically haven't done um, that I was reminded of when I did this, this uh, presentation. You know, okay, you don't have a plan, but could that change, basically? So we want to have them think about it. And no, we're not pressing them, and that's not going to trigger them to get there. That's us saying, you know, let's plan, you know, ahead of time so we can put safeguards in place. So if what might push you to the point where you would consider suicide? All right, let's make sure that doesn't happen. Whether or not a plan is present, if the patient has acknowledged suicidal ideation, there should be a specific inquiry about the presence or absence of a firearm. Men typically use firearms more than women, but it doesn't mean that women won't use them. Um, and, you know, firearms are probably one of the most common methods. Um, you know, there's also hanging, but some people avoid hanging because that sounds painful and they just want it to be over with quickly. Um, But firearms and and I also ask about pills in the house, especially um, opiate-type pills. If the patient has access to a firearm, recommend to him that a a significant other restricts access to this so they, they get rid of it somehow. They either put it in a safe and have... You know, their their spouse changed the lock so they can't get into the safe. Um, they give it to a friend. Same thing for medications that could be used to overdose. I encourage patients if they've got benzos or opiates in the house um, that they're not taking, you know, or even if they have them in the house, I encourage them to have somebody else kind of in charge of them if they think that that might be a risk factor. Uh, and then if they're supposed to be taking them, then that person gives them you know, a certain number each day, so they have enough to get them through the day. Uh, And that's actually how we deal with a lot of people when they first get out of substance abuse treatment, too. If they're prescribed certain medications like benzos, um, you know, who can help you monitor your medication? And then we wean off to where, you know, we're just doing pill counting every week when they come in and yada, yada. But anyway... Getting somebody involved that's going to help protect the person from the most lethal means. Document in the medical record, being sure to include any instructions that have been given to the patient and significant others about firearms, other weapons that can include, you know, knives, machetes, you know, whatever they use to hunt with. Um, And I also include medications in there for myself when I do it. Um, Assess the degree of suicidality, including intent and lethality of the plan. That'll give you a general idea. Now, remember, some people can, they can have thought about it. They can have actually created the whole plan in their head, you know, and, but they may not have that intent, you know, they see it as this out that's kind of out there, but their intent is low, but you also have other people who, when they get to the point of thinking it out, have a 100% intent. And remember, if their mood changes, if they're depressed, you know, really depressed, really upset one week, and then they come in and they seem to be doing a little bit better, don't take that to mean necessarily that they're doing better. That could be they've just made the decision that they're going to commit suicide. So you still want to keep, you know, Paying attention, intervening, you know, being alert to what's going on. Sometimes when people are in crisis or really depressed, they don't have the energy. And when they start getting that energy back is when, you know, they they decide to, to take the steps to kill themselves. So be co- cognizant of that. Between age 20, 10 and 24, doesn't that break your heart? Between the ages of 10 and 24 and over 70 years Are the critical periods. These are the highest, you know, I've told you yesterday that the risk of suicide was bimodal. So young people and older adults uh, tend to be at higher risk. Thoughts of death are more common in older adults, but as people age, they're less likely to endorse suicide. So, you know, a lot of times they're just like, they come to peace with whatever it is and decide when it's their time, it's their time. Self-destructive acts by older people do tend to be more lethal, though. The greater the lethality is the function of several factors reduced physical resilience, and this is in older adults reduced physical resilience, greater social isolation, and greater determination to die. Um, so, if they're starting to have a lot of physical health problems, um, and if they maybe their spouse just died or what have you? Um, they may have a stronger determination to die. So we want to look at all those things in, in older adults. What's changing? Suicidal elders give fewer warnings. A lot of times, you know, there are very few warnings. There are warnings, but there are very few most of the time. Um, gender: Death by suicide is more more than four times as frequent in men and women. Men are less likely to seek and accept help for treatment. We've kind of we still have that stigma going on, um, and a lot of men perceive treatment to be, you know, warm and fuzzy and crying and tissues and talking about feelings. And some men are not comfortable with that. Um, and one of the things that you know, I emphasize when I work with um, some of my clients, especially when I do presentations to first responder units, is that there is cognitive behavioral. You know, we can talk about very practical, very active things. We don't have to get down into, you know, that emotionally charged stuff necessarily. Um, And that seeking help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign that, you know, you don't know how to do something. You know, you had to have somebody teach you how to fill in the blank, drive a car, shoot a gun, whatever it is. Um, And so sometimes you need somebody to help teach you how to deal with things that are overwhelming, that overwhelm those skills that you currently have. Women have several protective factors. Tend to have lower rates of alcohol and substance abuse, although that's starting to change. Less impulsivity. I was surprised by that. More socially embedded. And as women um, typically, and this isn't true of all women by any means, but a lot of times women have more friends they have you know friends in the community and they have people they can rely on not everybody so you know you want to not assume that just because it's a female that she's got five girlfriends she can call because that may not be the case women do tend to be more willing to seek help though women have higher rates of depression and respond to unemployment with greater and longer lasting increases in suicide rates than men So I thought that was another interesting fact. So when women become unemployed, their suicide risk goes up. Um, Women who are pregnant or have young children are less likely to kill themselves. So yes, we have those bad media played up incidents of um, postpartum depression. But in general, women who are pregnant or who have children don't want to leave, leave those children. Rates of suicidal ideation and attempts are also increased in individuals with borderline personality disorder and those with a history of domestic violence and physical and or sexual abuse. Talking to the client, getting to know, you know, what their abuse history is, what their trauma history is, if they've got borderline characteristics or, you know, substance abuse is not listed here, but a lot of people when they are in active addiction have characteristics that are very similar to to borderline personality disorder. Um, and so if you've got those characteristics going on, they, they tend to be at more risk. Suicide in whites and non-Hispanics are approximately twice those observed in Hispanics, non-Hispanic African-Americans and Asian Pacific Islanders. So white non-Hispanics tend to be the ones that are at higher risk. For immigrant immigrant groups in general, suicide rates tend to mirror the rates in the country of origin but converge toward the rate in the host country over time. So if there were high suicide rates in the country of origin and there are lower suicide rates here, the longer they're in the country, theoretically, the lower their risk of suicide. Racial and ethnic differences in culture, religious beliefs, and societal position may influence the rates and values about suicide. In some cultures, like I said earlier, shame can be considered a traditionally accepted way of dealing with shame distress or physical illness so knowledge of and sensitivity to common contributors to suicide in different racial and ethnic groups as well as cultural differences in beliefs about death and suicide are really important for every mental health counselor because you've got people who come in um, who may be biracial who may you know um, be uh, of a certain race or or culture and you, you need to have that knowledge ahead of time. The suicide rate of single people is twice that of those who are married, despite what the memes on Facebook would tell you. Divorced, separated, or widowed individuals have rates four to five times higher than married individuals. So considering, you know, what does being divorced, separated, or widowed mean to this person? And uh, you can see where their suicide risk might go up The presence of another person in the household also may serve as a protective factor by decreasing social isolation, engendering a sense of responsibility towards others, and increasing the likelihood of discovery after a suicide attempt. So if somebody slits their wrists or overdoses, they may be found in time to be rescued and revived. Um, So encouraging people not to be alone when at all possible. The presence of a high conflict or violent marriage can be a precipitant rather than a protective factor of suicide. That's not a shock. Major psychiatric symptoms. More than 90% of people who die from suicide satisfy the criteria for one or more psychiatric disorders. So, you know, this statistic kind of can be used against the people with mental health issues are not dangerous. Um, But you've got to remember it's not either or whatever you want to say. There are millions of people that have diagnosable mental illnesses. There are not millions of people that commit suicide. But of the people who do try to commit suicide, 90% of them qualify for one or more psychiatric disorders. So of the, you know, 100,000 people that try to commit suicide each year, they also will likely have a psychiatric disorder. But the proportion of people with mental health issues that commit violent acts is really very small. Patients with mood disorders who died by suicide were more likely to have panic attacks, severe anxiety, diminished concentration, global insomnia, so they just can't sleep, moderate alcohol abuse, severe loss of pleasure, or interest in activities. Let me say something about global insomnia, though, because I have read some studies that have indicated that um, people who have insomnia... that that are able to get to sleep but they wake up at 12 or 1 in the morning and they're alone with their thoughts may be at greater risk um, than somebody who, you know, has difficulty falling asleep. So if they can't sleep at all or if they can't stay asleep, they're at risk. Suicidal ideation and a history of suicide attempts also augments risk. If you've already crossed that line, you're going to be a little bit more likely I guess, if you will, to cross that line again. Comorbid ang- and if somebody's attempted suicide before, then you have an idea that their their culture and spiritual principles or whatever don't necessarily admonish it. Um, we don't know if it advocates for it or not, but um, so you know you can't that there are some of the things that might prevent other people from committing suicide aren't necessarily going to prevent this person. Comorbid anxiety, alcohol use, and substance abuse are common in patients with mood disorders. Suicide in patients with schizophrenia is about 8.5-fold higher than those without schizophrenia. In schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, psychotic symptoms are often present during a suicide attempt. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're having command hallucinations, um, but they can be psychotic. Um, Command hallucinations account for a relatively small percentage of suicides. Patients with schizoaffective disorder appear to be at greater risk for suicide than those with schizophrenia. I'm going to let that sink in for a second. Patients with schizoaffective disorder are at a greater risk than those with schizophrenia. And suicide risk is increased in those who recognize a loss of previous abilities and are pessimistic about treatment. So if they, you know, we know that schizophrenia typically doesn't, happen until later in life you know in the in the 20s late 20s um so they may have had a great college career and be you know on their current career and now they're going oh my gosh you know I don't know that this will help I don't want to be you know I don't want to be schizophrenic if they don't have a lot of hope that treatment's going to help abuse of substances including alcohol may be the second most frequent psychiatric precursor to suicide um and I don't know the answer to that question about whether paranoid schizophrenics tend to commit suicide more or less than others, but I will look it up for you. Um, alcohol abuse or dependence is present in 25 to 50% of those who di- die by suicide. Um, impending interpersonal losses and comorbid psychiatric disorders have been specifically linked to suicide in alcoholic individuals. So you've got somebody who is struggling you know, with interpersonal losses and comorbid psychiatric issues, then they drink alcohol, which is a disinhibitor. It takes down the takes down those inhibitions and they're just like, well, you know, I can do this. Um, the normal filter that would say, no, we're not going there, may not be quite as prevalent. Full-time employment is a protective factor in alcoholics. And the majority of people who are alcoholic or substance, Alcohol dependent um, actually are employed, so you know that's not a surprising statement. Individuals with personality disorders have an estimated seven time increased risk for suicide, especially borderline, antisocial, avoidant, and schizoid personality disorders. Personality disorders exist in approximately 30 to 40 percent of those who attempt to or die by suicide. So not only are we looking at mood issues, we're also looking at personality disorder symptoms, at least. (laughs) So risk factors. Factors that increase suicide risk include communications of suicidal intent. All right, if they they said they're going to do it, let's take them seriously. Even if they have said it before. Prior suicide attempts. Um, So if they have had prior suicide attempts, we need to be on guard a little bit more. Um, for future suicide attempts continued or heavier drinking recent unemployment and living alone poor social support legal and financial difficulties serious medical or mental illness personality disturbance or other substance use I don't think any of these criteria are going to surprise you if you have someone who's struggling they're going to be at a greater suicide risk than somebody who's not Um, and so we've got to look biopsychosocially you know is there pain is there physical are there physical conditions that are contributing to it etc suicides multiple motivations you know we don't know why people do it there are some theories it's anger turned inward or a wish of death toward others that's redirected toward the self um you know that's obviously more psychoanalytic in nature and re- revenge reunion or rebirth some people when they kill themselves, are trying to get back at someone else. Some people, when they kill themselves, they can't take it anymore. Some people, when they kill themselves, are doing it because they don't want to be a burden to others. And there's probably a million other reasons, but those are three big categories. Suicide is rooted in a triad of motivations. The wish to die, I can't take it anymore. The wish to kill, I can't take you anymore. And the wish to be killed, you know, I wish somebody would make it go away. Suicidal behavior has been associated with poor object relations and the inability to maintain stable, accurate, and emotionally balanced memories of the people in one's life. So thinking about the person, for example, with borderline personality disorder, where it's all or nothing. They either love you or they hate you. It's very unstable um, concepts of of different people. Other important psychodynamic concepts are shame, worthlessness, and impaired self-esteem. So inpatient settings... Um, You know, we talked about how to handle it in different settings. Patients may be in the midst of an acute suicidal crisis or display the symptoms and disorders that typically lead to psychiatric hospitalization or increased suicide risk. Um, So if they're in inpatient settings, we need to know that they're already obviously struggling for some reason. And just because they're an inpatient, don't think that they're safe. Don't think that that says, all right, the pressure's off. They're not going to become suicidal. They can still decompensate. There do not appear to be specific risk factors unique to the inpatient setting. More than half of the patients who die by suicide in the hospital were admitted without suicidal ideation. So more than half of them came in. They weren't suicidal. But at some point during that treatment episode, they did become suicidal. It's important to remember. Now, whether they were triggered from trauma or whatever caused them to decompensate further, um, it's important to recognize that It's a high percentage. Extreme agitation or anxiety or a rapidly fluctuating course is common before suicide. And each suicidal crisis must be treated as new with each admission and assessed accordingly. Um, Let's see. And in inpatient settings, we're talking about uh, both psychiatric inpatient where they're involuntarily committed or voluntarily committed. Um, Generally, when that happens, they're already espousing some suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation if they're involuntarily committed um, or they're on a crisis stabilization unit. Um, But what we're talking about specifically here is a normal admit for a residential unit for something. uh, More than 50% of patients become suicidal after they've been admitted. In outpatient settings, suicidality may wax and wane in the course of treatment. Sudden changes in clinical status may include worsening or unexpected improvements in reported symptoms, and that requires that suicidality be reconsidered. So remember I said people may start acting like they're feeling better, and they may actually start feeling like the fog is lifting, but when that fog lifts, they may see what they think is the forest for the trees, which is hopelessness, and decide, you know what, no, no, and become suicidal and make that decision. And then they're at peace with it and they start tidying up affairs and saying their goodbyes and doing that stuff. Risk may also be increased by a lack of a reliable therapeutic alliance, a patient's unwillingness to engage in psychotherapy or adhere to medication treatment, and inadequate family or social supports. And remember, it's family as the client defines it, not necessarily family as you define it. So we want to just talk about social supports. In jail and correctional facilities, suicide is one of the leading causes of death. Persons who die by suicide in jails tend to be young, white, single, and intoxicated. Suicide in correctional facilities generally occurs by hanging. And isolation may increase suicide in these places. So if somebody is in jail and their family's not coming to visit them and they feel like, you know, nobody understands them, especially if they've never been in jail before, Um, the fear, the anxiety, the dread of, you know, what they're facing and everything can contribute. Suicidal behaviors increase. If you're in a correctional facility, this is one of those things to pay attention to. Immediately upon entry, the, oh, crap, what did I just do? I ruined my life. After new legal complications with the inmate's case, like a denial of parole, a sense of hopelessness and helplessness may set in. After inmates receive bad news about loved ones, you know, that could happen to anybody. And after sexual assault or another trauma. Suicidal patients can activate our own latent emotions about death and suicide, so we need to know how we feel about it. Countertransference: we may have some feelings of hate and anger at suicidal patients and avoid patients who bring up anxieties around suicide. We may see patients who seem to be somewhat suicidal and go, no, I'm not dealing with that person or that's going to be too difficult. Um, or we could have, you know, more guttural emotional reactions to it that we need to pay attention to because we're probably reacting to the suicidality, not the patient and get that in check. Seek consultation. Seek supervision. Um, Overestimating the patient's capabilities creates unrealistic and overwhelming expectations for the patient. Um, Be aware of becoming enveloped by the patient's sense of hopelessness and despair, then responding by becoming discouraged about the progress of treatment and the patient's capacity to improve. There's going to be, you know, very, very small steps, and it can be two steps forward and one and a half back, um, but we want to see you know what we 're looking for is the patient still surviving and you know a little bit better and it can be very, very incremental, but we want to focus on that um, and and yes, guards need to be cognizant of suicidality and mental health issues in jails, and families um, you know they may have very good reasons for not visiting their loved ones in in jail or in prison or whatever um however when we see someone who never has visitors um you know that's a risk factor so ideally it should send up the uh, warning flags for for the jail staff choice of specific treatment setting depends on the estimate of the patient's current risk to self or others their medical and psychiatric comorbidity so psychiatric you know that's We know that if they're clinically depressed, we're going to probably put them in a higher level of care um, than if this suicidality is brought on by some sort of proximal precipitating event. But, you know, it may not be any less lethal. So we want to pay attention to that. But we got to remember medical. You know, if they're dealing with fibromyalgia, for example, I've worked with patients with fibromyalgia that just... I mean, they wake up in the morning and they don't want to get out of bed. They're just like, it hurts too much. I don't, I I hurt all the time. I I don't want to go on like this. And that's not necessarily a mood issue as much as a pain issue. Or if somebody's diagnosed with a terminal illness or a chronic illness, um, that can contribute to uh, suicidality. We want to look at the strength and the availability of the psychosocial support network, the one that have. And are they willing to reach out? Are they willing to go to support groups? Are they willing to, you know, connect with other people who could be helpful to them? Um, And their ability to provide adequate self-care, give reliable feedback, and cooperate with treatment. So, you know, can they do what they need to do on a daily basis? If not, then we need to consider residential. Benefits of intensive interventions must be weighed against their possible negative effects, such as having the person feel like they've lost their independence, um, the stigma associated with going into residential, the issue of, you know, I've got kids that, you know, I need somebody to take care of, the impact it will have on their finances, the impact it may have on their job. You know, there are a lot of impacts that are going to happen if Jim Bob is suddenly not there for 30, 60 days. Suicide prevention contracts, or the no-harm contracts, are not a substitute for clinical assessment. The patient's willingness or reluctance to enter into an oral or written suicide prevention contract shouldn't be viewed as an absolute indicator of suitability for discharge. So if they say that, yeah, I'll sign that, no problem, that doesn't mean that they believe it, you know. Not recommended for use with patients who are agitated, psychotic, impulsive, or under the influence of any substance. If they're dependent on established, um, they need to be dependent on established physician-patient relationship. Uh, so if you don't have a good relationship with that person, you're not going to be able to judge their truthfulness in signing it. But, you know, if, you know, I'm working with somebody that I've never met before and they say, you know, will you sign this? Okay, fine. If it'll get me out of here, I'll sign it. Um, but if I'm working with, you know, my primary or something, I might go, you know what, doc, that. Let's be honest here. And suicide prevention contracts are not recommended for use in emergency settings or with newly admitted or unknown patients. Because, again, they'll sign anything if they really want to get out of that situation. Somatic interventions, benzos, treat symptoms such as insomnia, agitation, panic attacks, or anxiety long acting agents are often preferred over short acting agents now when people take benzos some people have the effect that as it starts to get out of the system they may have rebound panic um, which they may feel is even worse than just not taking it at all so monitor the benefits of benzo should be weighed against the occasional tendency to produce disinhibition you know taking off those inhibitions to hurt themselves their potential for interactions with other sedatives and their potential potential for abuse and addiction. Benzos being discontinued after prolonged use should be reduced gradually and the patient monitored for increased symptoms of anxiety, agitation, depression, or suicidality. Benzodiazepine withdrawal is one of those that needs to be monitored, uh, medically monitored. It's not safe for people to just quit cold turkey. Um, And they can have significant anxiety as well as changes in blood pressure and heart rate and stuff if they are discontinued too quick. Antidepressants. There is an evidence for a lowering of suicide rates with antidepressants, but it's inconclusive. So there's some studies that say yes, some studies that say no, some studies that say it increases suicidal ideation. Antidepressant effects may not be observed for days or weeks. We say 30 30 days to 6 weeks to really get in the system. Patients should be monitored closely early in treatment and educated about this probable delay in symptom relief. Some docs will prescribe something that's a little shorter acting while the SSRIs are kicking in. Um, I've seen clonopin prescribed a lot. Um, not so much um, Valium and Xanax, more clonopin more than, than those two. And I've seen Buspirone um, prescribed a fair amount as well. Other calming medications include Trazodone low doses of some second-generation antipsychotics, and some anticonvulsants, such as gabapentin. Um, Lithium is, you know, there's a lot of side effects to lithium, but in some cases, it may be the only option. The long-term maintenance treatment is associated with major reductions in the suicide risk in patients with bipolar and recurrent major depressive disorder. Um, So you have to weigh the benefits versus the side effects still requires frequent blood testing and um, there are certain foods people can't eat, et ECT is effective in patients with severe depressive illnesses with or without psychotic features and is often associated with a rapid and robust antidepressant response. A lot of people think about the old ECT and it terrifies the snot out of them. So they don't want to go anywhere near it. So educating them about what it looks like, what it feels like, what it will do. Um, is important, and then they can make an educated decision. It may be recommended as a treatment for severe episodes of major depression that are accompanied by suicidal ideation. And ECT may also be indicated for suicidal individuals during pregnancy and for those who have already failed to tolerate or respond to oral medications. Um, Clozapine is associated with a significant decrease in rates of suicide attempts for individuals with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. It should be given serious consideration for psychotic patients with frequent suicide, suicidal ideation. Um, so there are a lot of different things that you might see the doc prescribe. And if you're not, if the patient doesn't seem to be improving, they, they're having multiple episodes, you know, remembering these things and advocating for the client as needed. In order to promote treatment compliance, you know, we need to remember that while they're symptomatic, while they're in crisis, right after a trauma, they may be poorly motivated to do the stuff that you're asking them to do because they're just like, I can't I can't handle life right now, let alone one more thing you're asking me to do. What are you thinking about? Um, they may be less able to care for themselves. So making sure that they're remembering to eat, you know, it's not like they're, you know, incapacitated, but sometimes they need to be prompted to eat. They need; they may need somebody to, you know, help them remember to take their medication. P- some people with really bad depression, really severe clinical depression, may just not have the energy to get up and take a bath. So they need, may need somebody to encourage them to do it. They may be unduly pessimistic about their chances of recovery. So we want to educate, cheerlead, keep baseline data so we can show them those incremental improvements they may suffer from memory deficits or psychosis especially the memory deficits have them write things down so they remember when they took their medication they remember you know when they ate last etc and you can just do check sheets it doesn't have to be this big long thing if they're experiencing psychotic features obviously you're going to be working with a psychiatrist to try to get that under control And they may have reductions in insight about having an illness or needing treatment. So they may not see, you know, they may just see this as a bad environmental social situation and not recognize kind of their part in it, how they're interpreting it, how they're dealing with it, um, or see that there are other outs. Um, So they may not recognize that treatment can help. So we want to educate them about what treatment can do for them. During maintenance, patients undervalue the benefits of treatment and focus on its burdens. It's expensive. It's time consuming. I got to take time off from work. So if we can make it convenient, that's helpful. Um, and, and try to work with the person, you know, maybe every every two weeks and you have a face-to-face session and in the, in the middle, um, on the off weeks or whatever, you have a brief phone call. Um, you know, I don't know how you would bill for that, but try to think about ways to increase their compliance when you're talking with their family, encourage, um, educate that psychiatric disorders are real illnesses and effective treatments are both necessary and available. People aren't just going to snap out of it, you know, whether it's cognitive or biochemical or, or whatever's causing it, there's something that's causing this neurochemical imbalance. So we need to, and it could be behavioral, um, So we need to address that or that neurochemical imbalance is probably going to persist. So we need to help them figure out what it is. The role of stressors and other disruptions in precipitating and exacerbating suicidality or other symptoms. So, you know, how can we minimize stressors and let's educate about what stress does and how it increases anxiety and the HPA axis and impedes sleep and all that stuff. The course of improvement is probably going to be uneven. There's going to be jumps and then plateaus and maybe even a little backsliding, but that's okay. You know, we kind of expect that and that helps us learn more effectively what the person needs in order to avoid this in the future. Family history of suicide may increase suicide risk, but it doesn't make suicide inevitable. So it's, you know, not a hopeless situation. Families need to know how to identify symptoms that may indicate the patient is decompensating that are specific to that patient. When Jim Bob starts to become suicidal, what does he do? Not everybody acts the same way. They need to know methods for involving the police for involuntary evaluation or, as one of you pointed out earlier, having them do a well-being check. And I've had that done on on many occasions, not a ton, but enough, um, where a patient wasn't answering the phone and I was concerned. And so we sent law enforcement might do a well-being check. So know what the le- laws and regulations are in your area. Talk with your attorney and your supervisor about, you know, the limits of HIPAA and confidentiality and stuff. But most of the time, if you have a genuine concern for this individual, um, you can do a well-being check. And educate about how to react to suicidal behaviors in persons with borderline personality disorder because sometimes, um, Suicidal or self-injury beha- self-injurious injury self behaviors are not uncommon in people with borderline personality disorder. We don't want the family to assume that, oh, that's Sally. She's just acting out again. We want them to take it seriously and know how to act in order to diffuse the situation instead of spiral it out of control. Self-injurious behaviors may or may not be associated with suicidal intent. Sometimes it can be a means of releasing endorphins, numbing the pain, the intrapsychic pain, getting control, getting getting back at somebody by trying to make them feel guilty. There are a lot of motivations. Um, Without having any desire for death, individuals may intentionally injure themselves to express anger, relieve anxiety, generate a feeling of normality or self-control, terminate a state of depersonalization. So if they feel like they're detached from themselves, that may let them feel something and to distract or punish themselves. Self-injurious behaviors are sometimes characterized as gestures aimed at achieving secondary gains, which may lead to behaviors being downplayed when associated with minimal self-harm. Let's not, just knock that out of your brain right now. Take everything seriously. In assessing chronic self-injurious behaviors, determine whether suicidal intent is present. Um, And obviously, if you're working with somebody who's chronically self-injurious, there's going to be a whole clinical plan Around that so you know how not to reinforce that behavior but how to also give it you know due consideration there's an absence of suicidal intent or a minimal degree of self-injury should not lead the clinician to overlook other evidence of increased suicide risk so if they're tidying up affairs and saying their goodbyes even if they're not really hurting themselves significantly right now doesn't mean they won't every act needs to be assessed in the context of the current situation, biopsychosocial. The most frequent lawsuit settlements, and verdicts against psychiatrists are for suicides. Failure to document suicide risk assessment and interventions may give the court reason to conclude they were not done. So document it and document your consultations when you call up you know, your, your fellow colleague and say, hey, you know, I'm wondering if you would in, um, involuntarily commit on this. For patients who are hospitalized, it's also important to document the aspects of the risk assessment that justify inpatient treatment, particularly when it's occurring on an involuntary basis. So what justifies keeping this person on a 72-hour or however long hold? In documentation, you need to have reference to the reason for the assessment in order to set the context for the evaluation. So why is this person here? Why do we think they're suicidal? documentation reviews the factors that may contribute to increased shorter term or longer term suicide risk. So, you know, the person had ideation, but what made you think that they were really at risk? What risk factors were there? Reasoning processes that went into the assessment, clinical conclusions, um, and again, consultation. Please put that in there. Changes in the treatment plan should also be noted along with the rationale for such actions. So if they've been in once-a-week outpatient going along, and then all of a sudden they are involuntarily committed or voluntarily committed, Um, their treatment plan's probably going to change. So we need to know why, you know, not just have a sudden treatment plan change, but know why it changed. Interventions or actions that were considered but rejected should be recorded as well. So if you considered hospitalization but decided against it, defend why you did that. Suicide contracts are overvalued. It's not a legal document. It cannot and should not take the place of a thorough suicide risk assessment. Um, An undue reliance on suicide prevention contracts falsely lowers clinical vigilance without altering the patient's suicidal state. And I've seen this when we've had a client, when we've had clients on the unit who have been suicidal. And we've put them, we've had them sign a no harm contract and we also have them checking in every hour with their moods. But if they willingly sign that contract, I've seen the um, intensity, that's not the word I'm looking for, but uh, of staff supervising that client go down. So they're like, okay, the person's fine. We'll just check in with them every hour. If the person resists signing that contract um, and it seems to be, you know, more resistant to it, um, then I see staff being more vigilant about watching that person. So it's important not to take a piece of paper and assume it really means much of anything. Crisis intervention is a client-centered and comprehensive. It uses patients' strengths and resources. When people are in sui- have suicidal ideation, they are in crisis. Empathy and genuineness are key factors to developing that rapport and resolving the situation. Treatment modalities and settings are based on the client's level of functioning, their dangerousness to self, and the availability of supports and resources. So family supports, but also community resources. And, you know, also consider when we talk about supports, and we talked about this a little bit, if they're alone, if they live alone, that's a higher risk setting than if they don't. Um, Documentation is essential throughout the process, not just at assessment, but when you're reassessing um, before um, discharge, when you change a treatment plan. because We want to make sure that we're kind of keeping our finger on the pulse of what's going on here. Pharmacological interventions are used to provide acute symptom relief and enable the patient to focus on psychosocial interventions. It may help them get enough energy to focus on the interventions or reduce their anxiety enough where they can think clearly. All clients have the ability to help themselves, though, and that's what we really want to take away from this. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe, either in your podcast player or on YouTube. You can attend and participate in our live webinars with Dr. Snipes by subscribing at com slash counselor toolbox. This episode has been brought to you in part by allceus.com, providing 24-7 multimedia continuing education and pre-certification training to counselors, therapists, and nurses since 2006. Use coupon code counselor Toolbox to get a 20% discount off your order this month.